0: And gentlemen, introducing HPpodcraft.com Mystery attracts mystery. Ever since the wide appearance of my name as a performer of unexplained feats, I've encountered strange narratives and events which my calling has led people to link with my interests and activities. Some of these have been trivial and irrelevant, some deeply dramatic and absorbing, some productive of weird and perilous experiences, and some involving me in extensive scientific and historical research. Many of these matters I have told and shall continue to tell freely, but there is one of which I speak with great reluctance, and which I am now relating only after a session of grilling persuasion from the publishers of this magazine, who had heard vague rumors of it from other members of my family.
1: That would be the Houdini family. For this is a story ghost written by H. P. Lovecraft for one of the greatest and most famous performers of all time, Eric Weiss, better known as Harry Houdini. I've never heard of him. <laughs> Publishers <laughs> of what magazine? Yeah, what magazine? Uh, Weird Tales, maybe. I don't know, what magazine? What are yeah, you talking about? I believe about? it is Weird
2: Tales. It's Weird Tales. Uh, uh,
1: thanks for being the expert there. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're here today with our little podcast family. Uh, uh, I am Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lanke. And we are joined by none other than Andrew Lehman. The our strange
2: re- uncle who comes
1: down <laughs> occasionally from the attic. <laughs> <laughs> our uh, reader is Matt Foyer, star of the silent film Call of Cthulhu, directed by Andrew here, and the upcoming Whisper in Darkness.
3: Yeah, and he was also the uh, the neighbor kid on Chico and the Man back in the late 70s. Is that true? Nope, not at all. All right, awesome. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I also want to say that
1: the music for this episode has been provided by a listener uh, and and friend of the show. Yeah, friend of the show. uh, Reber Clark who uh, produced a film that he made himself called Lovecraft Paragraphs. Mm -hmm. All of the selections in in today's episode, well, most of them are going to be from uh, the soundtrack of Lovecraft Paragraphs.
3: Yeah. Before we uh, dive into the story,
1: how the heck did uh,
2: H.P. Lovecraft come to write a story for Harry Houdini? How did he? Well, apparently Houdini had been in contact with the owner of Weird Tales, uh, Hennebarger, and um, Hennebarger had heard... Houdini tell the story of this thing that had happened to him in Egypt and thought it would make a good story for the magazine. So Hennebarger uh, hired Lovecraft Mm -hmm. to ghostwrite the story on Houdini's behalf. And it was the first time Lovecraft ever got
3: paid in advance to write a story for Weird Tales magazine. $100. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs)
2: Wow.
3: Man, he really made out. He's yeah. going to go buy himself a top hat, a monocle.
1: <laughs> it is sort of, I mean, it, it, it's a crazy convergence of, of fascinating characters from the early 20th century. Yeah, yeah, it is. It almost yeah. feels like an episode of Young Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, almost, it's almost unbelievable. Uh, now, I, I heard that Houdini had told the story, but it, it was a little spurious to begin with.
2: Right. Well, most of the stories that Houdini told were a little bit spurious to begin with. <laughs> right. He was always trying to cultivate his image as a man of mystery and a man of magic. and, and Adventure. Uh, adventure, and most of the things that he told about himself were calculated for publicity value. So mm-hmm. I, right. there's very little that Houdini ever said about himself that you could just take at face value. Right, exactly.
1: It, it is kind of neat how this story has got. Strong characteristics of Houdini, and then it takes some really serious Lovecraftian left turns. That, that <laughs> so, uh, yeah. with that little bit, it of context, is it is quite a marriage of the two guys. <laughs> yeah. It really is. So, with that little bit of context, uh, let's just get
0: into it. The hitherto guarded subject pertains to my non-professional visit to Egypt fourteen years ago, and has been avoided by me for several reasons. And for one thing, I am averse to exploiting certain unmistakably actual facts and conditions, obviously unknown to them. Myriad tourists who throng about the pyramids, apparently secreted with much diligence by the authorities at Cairo, who cannot be wholly ignorant of them. For another thing, I dislike to recount an incident in which my own fantastic imagination must have played so great a part. What I saw, or thought I saw, certainly did not take place, but is rather to be viewed as a result of my then-recent readings in Egyptology and of the speculations anent this theme which my environment naturally prompted. These imaginative stimuli, magnified by the excitement of an actual event terrible enough in itself, undoubtedly gave rise to the culminating horror of that grotesque night so long past.
1: So this is a nice skeptical intro
3: to the answer next? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Udini was a well-known skeptic. And he spent a lot of his free time going out and uh, debunking psychics. Uh, Right. In fact, I think, weren't he and Lovecraft working on some kind of book together? They were working uh, on a book together. I think there might have been an astrology
1: book that they were working on. The Cancer
3: of Superstition. Oh, is that what it was? That was a book, yeah, that that, never got written. That was the book that Houdini wanted to write with Lovecraft and Eddie. Mm -hmm. They were going to do this book specifically just about how superstition is, you know, Huh. Bad And right. mysticism in general and all that stuff. But Houdini died before they were able to publish it right. or even start writing it. And Eddie, you mean C.M. Eddie? C. M. Eddie the, yeah. The collaborator he wrote The Love Dead with. The Love Dead and, Dad Eddie, and of... the other stuff. Yeah. Right. Wow.
1: Well, okay, so this incident happened in 1910 that Houdini's referring to in that last passage. Mm-hmm. He was engaged to perform in Australia. And as he had plenty of time to get there on the way, he decided to make a stopover in, in Egypt to see some history with mm-hmm. his wife, Bess. Just a, a little fact that I found interesting. I just read this book a couple of months ago called The Secret Life of Houdini by William Kalush and Larry Sloman, which I recommend to anybody. It was a really, really good book. Some things in it are a little crazy. They're speculating that he was a secret agent of the government and a lot of what he did, which I think Houdini <laughs> would like quite a bit. <laughs> uh, oh, totally. But, you know, some people don't uh, think of him as an a- aviation pioneer, but he was. Oh, yeah. He was yeah, a yeah. big pilot. Yeah. And uh, that trip to Australia, he was the first person to fly in an airplane in Australia. What? Yeah. I did not know that. First uh, manned aircraft flight in Australia was Harry
2: Houdini. And in fact, that happened uh, about 100 years ago this month. And apparently they're going to have a big uh, festival to celebrate Houdini's first flight in Australia. Because Holy it cow. was in mm-hmm. March of 1910. So it was oh, 100 wow. years ago this month. That's yeah. super cool. Yeah, Man, that Houdini rocked. He really was a cool guy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they're on board this ship traveling to Egypt. And uh, this, well, this is great... Bit of Houdini's personality that comes out. Houdini's trying to stay undercover. He was one of the most famous men in the world in 1910. Yeah, I mean, everybody yeah. knew who this guy was. He performed all throughout America and Europe, and uh, he wanted to travel incognito, or at mm-hmm. least it says in the story that he wanted to travel incognito. Unfortunately, there was another magician on board who was doing some tricks, and Houdini just couldn't handle it. He had to do his, had <laughs> to show that yeah. he could also do that guy's tricks and do them better, and, uh-huh. and in that way, he revealed himself. Just so egotistical. I mean, I feel so bad for this magician. Oh, yeah. Yeah, any
2: vaudevillian on on the same boat as Harry Houdini is screwed. Even if Houdini doesn't want to be known, he will upstage you. But, you know, I was on the bus a couple of weeks ago, and there were some
1: kids in the back doing an H.P. Lovecraft podcast. Oh, really? Yeah, I went back there and schooled them. immediately. Um, so I understand. So anyway, Houdini and Bess, well, this had, this, that's a problematic thing, because when he kind of reveals himself on board the ship, well, all those people are going to Cairo, too. Mm-hmm. So they all leave the boat, and they basically tell everybody that they meet oh, yeah. travel that, with Harry Houdini. So
3: everybody in Cairo knows Houdini exactly. is, is rolling into town.
1: They, uh, Houdini and Bess, they arrive
2: in Egypt, uh, but they're mostly unimpressed because it's not quite as ancient world as they'd like it to be. It's a tourist trap. It looks just like every place in Europe and every place they've ever been, and it's kind of a letdown. But
1: things get better once they start touring around a little. They engage this guide, Abdul, and Houdini hints at that part of the story, or Lovecraft adds Houdini hints in that part of the story, that, yeah, you know, maybe I should have hired a licensed guide in, <laughs> in light of what I'm about to tell you. But the guy seemed to know his stuff. He also makes a lot of references to this guy looking like the Sphinx. And having a weird-sounding voice. Yeah. I think it's amusing early in the story when he says that maybe I had just read too many books about Egyptology recently, because in the subsequent paragraphs, once they get to Egypt, it it really is like Lovecraft's been really boning up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, oh, it's crystal clear. It felt,
3: and to me, it was a little annoying, maybe because I knew that beforehand. I'm just like, okay, okay, you did your research. I Mm -hmm. get it. I get it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) On the other hand, it does... I personally
2: have never been to Egypt, but no, you, after reading after reading this passage, you go, I, you feel like you have a pretty good, vivid sense of what it must have been like to go there. I mean, yeah, it is it is a pretty good travelogue and description of you know Port Said and
3: Cairo and yeah. But I felt like I was reading a travelogue and not and not a Lovecraft story. You know, that, well, but like, it, I, I it gets Lovecraftian in
2: chapter two. <laughs> <laughs> no, sure I, personally, no. I
1: am. I, I was ripped by it maybe the first time I read it because I was rereading it this time. I was uh-huh. sort of like, all right, let's go, let's go, let's go. But I don't know. I, I agree. I, I thought it creates a nice sense of atmosphere and and gives you some facts and you know kind of paints a picture.
2: Especially since you know that Cairo and stuff is gone forever I mean, yeah. it's fun to imagine what it would have been like to go there to be Indiana Jones or to be Harry Houdini in the Cairo of the 1920s right. and since that Cairo is forever gone it's it's kind of a fun little glimpse into yeah. the Cairo of yesteryear I think I agree Lackey, you're on the
3: outs. I know. Man, I got ganged up on. on. (laughs) Just Uh, like. (laughs) Right. So, uh, (laughs) it's a nice preview. Uh, So,
1: after a day of touring around the neighborhoods and all the attractions of old Cairo, Bass and Houdini and and Abdul, they grabbed some camels, I think one donkey, and what he describes as some useless men and boys. (laughs) This was interesting to me. Now, I wonder if Houdini was, because I know that he complained about money a lot, even though he was was pretty wealthy. Uh He hated spending money, and, uh, and I wonder if Lovecraft picked that up. Up from him, or Lovecraft was just so poor that he wanted to throw in some thriftiness. I don't know, but he complains a lot about spending money in this early part of the story, right, which yeah. I find funny. And they they head off to the pyramids the next morning.
0: The pyramids stand on a high rock plateau. This group forming next to the northernmost of the series of regal and aristocratic cemeteries built in the neighborhood of the extinct capital Memphis. Near the edge of the plateau and due east of the second pyramid, the face probably altered to form a colossal portrait of Kephryn, its royal restorer, stands the monstrous Sphinx, mute, sardonic, and wise beyond mankind and memory. From what
1: I read, Houdini's original
0: story had the action in Campbell's
1: tomb just close to the Sphinx, but Lovecraft decided to set it around the Temple of the Sphinx. Which
2: is a much better choice, because Campbell's Tomb, as far as I can tell, is just a hole in the ground. I mean, Campbell's Tomb is just a big, empty pit. It doesn't seem very exciting. There's really no features in Campbell's Tomb of any kind.
1: Now, the Sphinx is the largest monolith statue in the world. Yeah. Gigantic Lion with a man's head, it's missing a nose, right? It was built around 2500 BC. Or right. so
2: they like to say.
1: That's yeah. right. Who
3: knows? Yeah. Well, Who's there big, was some big speculation about that, that there is supposedly water damage on the Sphinx, which means that the last time that their area saw the enough rain to have water damage on it would be about 10,000 years before.
2: There are also some people who uh, link the, the orientation of the Sphinx and the pyramids around it to uh, Orion, the stars in Orion's belt as they appeared like 10,000 years ago so there's there are other people who try to date the Sphinx as being incredibly ancient based on astronomical yeah. evidence as well as the, the water erosion evidence. Nobody. But, the bottom line is nobody knows how the hell nobody the Nobody knows. Is. They don't know but
1: because there's uh, people aren't sure about it I, I believe in ghosts and aliens. Oh,
2: okay. No, yeah,
1: that's In the story, story it yeah. says, uh, <laughs>
0: there are unpleasant tales of the Sphinx before Kephren but whatever its elder features were, the monarch replaced them with his own, that men might look at the Colossus without fear. The Sphinx vaguely displeased us and made us wonder about the legends of subterranean passages beneath the monstrous creature leading down, down to depths none might dare hint at, depths connected with mysteries older than the dynastic Egypt we excavate, and and having a sinister relation to the persistence of abnormal animal-headed gods in the ancient Nilotic pantheon.
3: Kefron was king of the fourth dynasty and lived at uh, 2003... no, 2520 BC. Okay. Yeah. So, boom, that's, that guy's old. Yeah. No matter how you slice it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. Grosses me out, he's so old. Uh, I don't know why I said that. The... Uh, but it's
1: interesting, so he, he apparently put his own face on there because there was something far more displeasing uh-huh, yeah. originally
3: on the Sphinx. If you've seen the pictures of a Sphinx, it does seem like the face was added later. It doesn't look like the body. to me. I mean, the pictures I've seen of the body, and this is all just my personal observation, and other people have made this, is that looks the face looks too small for the body, like there was something there and it got whittled down to a face. They also seem to be sculpted
2: in <clears throat> different styles and, yeah. you know, The face just looks newer than the rest
1: of it. The rest of it, yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Well, yeah, okay, so we're setting up a theme in which maybe some human heads are being grafted onto animal bodies or vice versa in unnatural ways. I'm sure that that probably won't play out at all in the story. no. (laughs) Houdini and Co. tour the pyramids and they trek to the top of the Great Pyramid, but at this point they don't explore all the subterranean passages because they're a little tired, a little worn out, and uh, frankly all the natives are annoying Harry Houdini with their clamoring and their selling yeah he is however attracted to those passages and uh he resolves to visit them himself at the earliest opportunity which came as he says much earlier than he'd expected right but so here's what happens houdini has abdul take him on a walk through the arab quarter of cairo at night and abdul gets in a fight with the young bedouin who maybe just didn't like the look on his face. There doesn't seem to be too much good reason for it. No, right. Houdini intervenes in the struggle, he splits them up, and then the two combatants get their dignity together and they make a pact.
0: A pact for the settlement of their difference by means of a nocturnal fist fight atop the Great Pyramid. Long after the departure of the last moonlight sightseer, each duelist was to assemble a party of seconds, and the affair was to begin at midnight. Proceeding by rounds in the most civilized possible fashion, in all this planning, there was much which excited my interest. It's definitely not out of character for Vinnie to want to be part of something like
3: that. Well, I mean, it's—I mean, that's it's some adventure that's going on right exactly. there. You, yeah. you want to be—you want to see that. Some dudes are gonna go fight on top of a pyramid. I know, that's, that's a great myth. Right, although, he, I mean, come
0: on,
2: Houdini, Lovecraft as Houdini says that this is a pact of honor, which is a custom of great antiquity, and it's like, <laughs> so are we supposed to to believe that guys are always going up to the top of the Great Pyramid to punch <laughs> each other in the face? I mean, it's you know, right. this is they're guys standing in line every night at midnight to go beat each other up on the top of the Great Pyramid because it seems it seems a little dubious to me. That's really that, that that Houdini would fall for that. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Let's all go to the top of the Great Pyramid and beat each other up. Since the beginning of time, (laughs) men have punched each
1: other in the face. On
3: top of the pyramid.
1: (laughs) Well... He does fall for this, and uh, he wants to be one of Abdul's seconds. And then the two, Abdul and Houdini, run around. They get all their other guys together to mm-hmm. be part of this box. And he match.
3: goes. He talks about how he goes into all these, like, really seedy joints. Yeah. And it kind of makes me think of uh, The Magnificent Seven. You know, like oh, yeah. He goes all those, <laughs> all those different places and finds a guy, like, drunk and passed out. And then, you know, finds a, a dude that everybody's scared of. And So,
0: at <laughs> a little after nine, they head out to the
1: pyramids, which he describes as ghoulish in the nighttime.
0: Even the smallest of them held a hint of the gas. But was it not in this that they had buried Queen Nittacris alive in the Sixth Dynasty? Subtle Queen Nittacris, who once invited all her enemies to a feast in a temple below the Nile and drowned them by opening the water gates. I recall that the Arabs whisper things about Natakris and shone the Third Pyramid at certain phases of the moon. That is subtle.
3: (laughs) Now, Nittacris was supposed to be a blonde... Woman with fair complexion, which is pretty weird oh, really? for Egypt. She? Yeah. She was uh, alive from 2152 BC to 2149 BC. Allegedly. Allegedly. The whole gang of hoodlums gathers up on top of the
1: Great Pyramid, which. Has been flattened obviously because of erosion. There's no apex anymore. So it, I was just imagining it, them having the, the poles up there and the, the, like it would be a wrestling oh, yeah. ring or something like that. <laughs> what? A microphone coming down yeah, from the box. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. they, they have their boxing match, which Houdini feels, well, wait a minute, this looks a little staged, uh-huh. finally. Yeah. And Abdul wins, but even though he feels that it's a little faked out, he's kind of proud of his guy. Yeah. <laughs> I had his back and he, he took it out. And the thing is over seemingly before it started, but. The next thing you know, everybody's kind of drinking and carousing. And oh, and then after they fight, they become good friends, too. Exactly. Like, yeah, they're like, oh, It's yeah, the way it goes in yeah. like,
2: Cairo. You know, you're enemies one minute and best friends the next,
1: apparently. Yeah. And while they're uh, talking, it seems like they're not exactly talking about the fight, but they're making lots of motions, like uh, about being in water chambers and getting tied up. And uh, <laughs> they obviously know who they're with. Oh, oh like, I see. you know, And they understand that he's an escape artist and a magician, which makes Houdini think, well, wait a minute. These guys are natives, and they probably believe a bit in that old Egyptian lore in which magicians are kind of resented around here.
0: Yeah. Suddenly something happened which, in a flash, proved the correctness of my reflections and made me curse the denseness whereby I had accepted this night's events as other than the empty and malicious frame-up they now showed themselves to be. Without warning, and doubtless in answer to some subtle sign from Abdul, the entire band of Bedouins precipitated itself upon me. produced heavy ropes soon had me bound as securely as I was ever bound in the course of my life, either on the stage or off. I struggled at first, but soon saw that one man could make no headway against a band of over twenty sinewy barbarians. My hands were tied by my back, my knees bent to their fullest extent, and my wrists and ankles stoutly linked together with unyielding cords. A stifling gag was forced into my mouth, and a blindfold fastened tightly over my eyes. Then, As the Arabs bore me aloft on their shoulders and began a jouncing descent of the pyramid, I heard the taunts of my late guide, Abdul, who mocked and jeered delightedly in his hollow voice and assured me that I was soon to have my magic powers put to a supreme test which would quickly remove any egotism I might have gained through triumphing over all the tests offered by America and Europe. Egypt, he reminded me, is very old and full of inner mysteries and antique powers not even conceivable to the experts of today whose devices had so uniformly failed to entrap me.
2: Well, but, this is uh, really bad news. I love, I love how Lovecraft puts the word frame-up in quotes <laughs> like it's this exotic term, but then later he'll throw out, you know, Egyptanic and thaumatropic and hypostyle like it's normal speaking. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah! <laughs> What a great point. I'm a little puzzled though. Now, why
1: why do they not
3: like him? Is it because he debunks magicians or is it because he is a magician? I think he, they just want to knock him down a few pegs. Like, oh, he's this great escape artist. He can get out of anything. Well, let's see, pal. You know? Is that what it is? I mean, that's the impression I got. That's. I mean, if this story is in fact
2: based on something that actually happened to Harry Houdini in Egypt, uh-huh. I mean, this would seem to be the kernel of truth in the story that right. he was traveling in Egypt and some Egyptians, said, hey, let's teach Harry Houdini a lesson and, and, you know, tie him up and throw him into the bottom of Campbell's tomb and see yeah. if he can get out. right? Because, you know, they, they're not robbing him, they're not kidnapping him, they're yeah. apparently yeah. just trying to humiliate him by making it Make possible sh- for him to escape. Yeah, showing or so that, they think.
3: Yeah, show shows that he can't get out of anything. So one,
2: you know, and especially since Lovecraft as Houdini admits at the very beginning that everything else that he's going to tell about in the story didn't actually happen. This would appear to be the only part of the story that ever actually happens. The question I was left with after reading it is why did they do it and I, I sort of agree with Chris that it's just to say you're not so great
3: yeah because you know he's this, he's the biggest celebrity in the world and you know everybody and they're, they're a bunch to... of Egyptian punk
2: kids who think they can you know yeah get one over on them. it's sort of there was an episode of Jersey Shore that was
1: like that where I think <laughs> that, the the kids were all hanging out in the bar and they were getting harassed and I think it was because the cameras are around and they were like hey these guys are getting filmed so we gotta take them down oh, a few yeah, days yeah, oh. you know I remember that episode I've taken a lot of lessons out of Jersey Shore <laughs> this past year, uh, but it didn't remind me of I mean if you ever had the situation when you're younger when you're hanging out with people and you think you're having a good time usually it's with the older kids or something and then yeah. you gradually realize they're making fun of you mm. you know like the reason that they have you around. Ra- no that did never never
3: happen happened to me no or Andrew probably
2: I don't know I wasn't even listening What?
3: that might be happening <laughs> that might be happening right now <laughs>
1: Houdini doesn't know what the heck is going on uh, because he's bound and gagged and blindfolded but he does know that he wasn't taken very far from the boxing ring and he knows that he's been set down on sand not rock and shortly thereafter they pull a rope around his chest and they begin lowering him down 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 into this narrow hewn well He says he's lowered into this hole in the earth. He assumes it's a burial shaft of some kind because it's very narrow, and they're lowering for what seems like eons. He says, you know, he can't believe there's a rope long enough, or or that he could descend this far without reaching
3: the core of the planet. uh, uh, Well, as he's going down too, the the rocks are jagged, and Mm. it's cut, it's cutting him up and ripping his clothes. Yeah. So he's getting really messed up right now. And he's hogtied. That can't be comfortable.
1: No, that sounds terrible. (laughs) Uh, And as a result of this, he does a very non-Houdini, but very Lovecraftian thing. He has a fainting spell.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Then the mental cataclysm came. It was horrible. Hideous beyond all articulate description, because it was all of the soul. With nothing of detail to describe. It was the ecstasy of nightmare, and the summation of the fiendish suddenness of it was apocalyptic and demonic. One moment I was plunging agonizingly down that narrow well of million-tooth torture. Yet the next moment I was soaring on bat wings in the gulfs of hell, swinging free and swoopingly through illimitable, miles of boundless, musty space, rising dizzily to measureless pinnacles of chilling ether, then diving gaspingly to sucking nadirs of Ravenous, nauseous, lower vacua. Thank God for the mercy that shut out in oblivion those clawing furies of consciousness, which half unhinged my faculties and tore harpy-like at my spirit. That one respite, short as it was, gave me the strength and sanity to endure those still greater sublimations of cosmic panic that lurked, gibbered on the road ahead.
3: Yikes! That sounds very Lovecraftian. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But,
1: you know, at least he uses the fainting spell to kind of steal himself up. Thank goodness I fainted a little because it gave me a little rest. And I'm able to move move on with my adventure. Now, I had heard
2: that Houdini wasn't too happy with that one aspect of the story that he was depicted as being capable of fainting in the face of it. Right,
3: yeah, because I I believe I've heard the the, the same thing. It's, I'm submerged underwater. If I fainted, I would be dead. I cannot faint. It's something that just doesn't happen to me. And I believe it,
2: because he did do some pretty badass stuff. Yeah, but he, when he was submerged underwater, he he was in control of being submerged underwater. This is him being taken by surprise by 20 sinewy barbarians and, <laughs> and dropped a, an apparently, you know, into a bottomless pit. So he's he was a magician. He wasn't a miracle worker. When he was submerged in water, it was a trick. He knew yeah. how he was going to get out in advance. In right. fact, they probably there, that was probably
1: a revision. The original text was like my pants were fouled immediately. <laughs> no, no, no. Say fainting. Houdini's <laughs> a big client. <laughs> Well, from there, we enter the second chapter of this story. I dreamed that I was in the
0: grasp of a great and horrible paw. A yellow, hairy, five-clawed paw which had reached out of the earth to crush and engulf me. When I stopped to reflect what the paw was, it seemed to me that it was Egypt. Egypt.
1: Little preview for something, maybe.
3: Yeah. Who knows? I don't think so. That uh, has nothing to do with the conclusion of this tale. No, nothing, nothing at all. At
1: all. Gradually, uh, Houdini comes out of this feigning spell, and he finds that he's on a damp rock floor. He knows he's pretty damn far underground. Maybe in the temple of the Sphinx. He speculates. Could be. Which there was a, a passageway, to in the yeah. in the second pyramid. And there's
3: a, a, a putrescent smell. Mm, yeah, so it bad. smells really like maybe like old herbs and spices. You know, like mm-hmm. some ancient tomb-like order.
1: Uh, first order of business, as always for Houdini, escape. <laughs> but hopefully, without alerting the uh, Arabs up above that he's getting loose, that the rope is still tied to yeah. him.
2: And he assumes that they're holding the other end, and they'll right. be able to detect any motion that he might, uh, you know, emit.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly, but that's more easily said than done. As soon as he starts moving around, He realizes he's got to have a a good range of motion if he wants to get out of these bounds. Mm -hmm. As he said, he's never been tied up on stage or in his personal life uh, (laughs) as securely as he is now. Uh,
2: And as soon as he does that, he feels the rope begin to fall from above. They've let it go. Oh, yeah. And he assumes it's because they have cottoned on to the fact that he's woken up, so they're now running to intercept him wherever they think he might try to escape from wherever he is. Ah, Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: That belief was shattered and every pristine apprehension of preternatural depth and demonic mystery revived by a circumstance which grew in horror and significance, even as I formulated my philosophical plan. I have said that the falling rope was piling up about and upon me. Now I saw that it was continuing to pile, as no rope of normal length could possibly do. It gained in momentum and became an avalanche of hemp, accumulating mountainously on the floor and half-burying me beneath its swifty, multiplying coils. Soon I was completely engulfed and gasping for breath as the increasing convolution submerged and stifled me. My senses tottered again, and I vainly tried to fight off a menace desperate and ineluctable. It was not merely that I was tortured beyond human endurance, not merely that life and breath seemed to be crushed slowly out of me, it was the knowledge of what those unnatural lengths of rope implied, consciousness of what unknown and incalculable gulfs of inner earth must at this moment be surrounding me. My endless descent and swinging flight through goblin space, then, must have been real. And even now I must be lying helpless in some nameless cavern world toward the core of the planet. Such a sudden confirmation of ultimate horror was insupportable, and a second time I lapsed into merciful oblivion. He faints again. Yes.
2: <laughs> now Campbell's tomb, if I if my reading on the subject is accurate, is only like sixty feet deep.
0: Yeah. Oh really.
2: So, you know, if this actually happened at all and people lowered Houdini into Campbell's tomb, then yeah. there's not an unlimited supply of rope that no. they could drop down no, on of him course not. afterwards. So no. pretty good reason for Lovecraft to change it up and not have it take place in Campbell's tomb, because right. Campbell's tomb's <laughs> <laughs> pretty lame.
3: And, I mean, that's this is a pretty cool thing. That, I mean, yeah, to think that that's how deep it yeah. is, and that just to think of how much rope it would actually take to get down there, and it gets buried, in it. like yeah. it's that much
1: rope. It's a stunning image, really. I think it's the one thing that I took away from the story, having read it twenty years ago or whenever I read it. Right, I, it I really stuck with me that the rope falling and falling and falling and falling as an indicator of how deep you are, and I would have fainted too. And that concludes part one of Under the Pyramids, featuring guest host Andrew Lehman and the music of Reber Clark. We'll be back next week with part two. This has been the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com.
0: hppodcraft.com.